Uh, welcome to Sunday School. We are continuing our, uh, our series on the Westminster Confession of Faith. We are in chapter 3 today. It is entitled, Of God's Eternal Decree. So this is going to be a good one. Uh, this really separates the, uh, the uh, boys from the Calvinists. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point. Okay. All right. Well, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get going. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you thankful for this time we have. We are thankful that we are able to come into your house and that we're able to think on your word and even think on what your word uh, speaks to us about your plan and your will for us. So we pl pray, Lord, for wisdom and understanding as we go through this, uh, through this series, Lord. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Okay. Well, uh, chapter 3, as we talk about God's eternal decree, we are talking uh, mainly about what we mean when we say that someone is uh, elect or predestined, all the words that make people upset. Uh, so, and it's in chapter 3, so you can see the, West, uh, the Westminster divines uh, understood this as important uh, quite quickly in, the, in, the stud, in, their, in, their, in their work. Um, when I was... Uh, when I was at Bob Jones University as a student, uh, the president back then, uh, the th Bob the Third, would uh, start a chapel most of the time with this phrase. Uh, he would say, uh, "The most sobering reality in the world today is," and then we in the audience would say. Uh, that people are dying and going to hell today. So he would say, the most sobering reality in the world today, let me say, is that people are dying and going to hell today. And that is, a, that is a, I would say, the most sobering reality in, in this world today. Uh, when you think about what hell means, um, we, we really... As, uh, other than the problem of evil, in apologetics, um, the, hard, the second hardest question is, when is God's wrath satisfied? Um, because when we talk about hell, we're talking about constant, forever wrath upon people. Never-ending, it's never enough. Um, there's no reprieve. There's no moment where there's a time that comes where finally God's wrath has been poured out enough and they can be brought in. It never happens. And not only that, but it never happens that anyone in hell even repents. Through the years upon years of pain, no one comes to the point of repentance. There's no repentance in hell. And so when we talk about sobering realities, 
we understand the sobering reality of, of hell and even the sobering reality that God has saved you from it. It's sobering. It's, it's exciting, but it's also very sobering. And so with that said, as we go into this first, uh, uh, the third chapter, first article, um, keep those things in mind about what we mean by uh, the sobering reality of hell. Um, so let me read it for you. You sh should have a copy before you. Thankfully, Andrew thought to do that. Uh, I didn't, but I'm glad it's there. Uh, so God, from all eternity, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordained or ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or um, contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Okay. Now for some of you, this might... It started out okay, and then it just turned into Latin. Um, but let me, uh, let me give you uh, an NIV version of this. Um, even back before anything was created, back in what we call eternity past, which doesn't make really much sense other than before anything was created, um, God counseled within himself. And this counsel was wise and holy. And he counseled according to his own will, which is free and it's unchangeable. And what he counseled within, his, within the Trinity was everything that's going to happen when he created. Everything that came to pass is what he planned on. Okay. But having said that, um, knowing that part of the plan is that sin will enter the world, this does not make God the author of sin. Neither does it make uh, the people he made robots, where they have no will of their own. They just have to obey the will of, of the plan. Nor does this create a problem for what is called second causes? And we'll explain that in just a minute. Um, that is, second causes is an idea that uh, was very important, especially in the time of the Westminster Divines. It was, became expounded on and talked about by Jonathan Edwards, um, who uh, is probably one of the most difficult thinkers to really grasp because not because uh, he was a bad communicator I think he was just too smart for this world <laughs> just, he was just always beyond us a little bit there were some crazy things about Jonathan Edwards but um, but in the end he's just smarter than all of us okay 
So I want to uh, introduce this, uh, particularly this article, uh, by giving you um, an example to help you understand that what I'm a, how I'm going to explain this article is not a cop-out. Um, there are some people that think that uh, when theologians or people try to describe theology, there's this cop-out of you got to hold this in your hand and you got to hold this in your hand and it looks like it's contradictory, but it's really not. You just got to trust us. And uh, people say, oh, that's a cop-out. I, I want to understand. So I want to demonstrate for you something, and I think I've talked about this before. I'm getting to the age where I've just stopped caring whether I've said it before. I'm sure I have. <laughs> it's just, and knowing that most people don't listen, it's good to hear it again. So, um, so have you ever heard of particle wave duality? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this, is, this is something we usually introduce to second and third graders, but I'm sure you guys can remember back then. Okay, so, so uh, in the 20th century, uh, scientists realized that they, ha they hadn't figured everything out. They thought they had figured everything out, and then the 20th century comes along, and we discover this, this realm called quantum. And in the quantum world, everything is backwards and bizarre, and it defies all the Newtonian physics that we were so sure about. And, uh, and so one of the experiments they did as they wanted, to they wanted to know what light was. Uh, light is probably one of the most important substances on the earth, if we call it a substance, since it has no mass. Uh, but, uh, but light basically are all these particles, these, these particles that have no mass, and they, they shoot down, they bounce off stuff, and they go inside our eye, and we, we can see. Um, and so what they did was they created a room and a contraption that was able to get just one light particle to go across a field and land on a sheet of paper, basically. Right? And that's a pretty big feat to get one light particle to be able to do that. But then they said, hey, what if we put a slit, uh, like another piece of paper in front, and create a slit and maybe another slit? And we had this double slit to see where the particle's gonna go. Will it go in the left side or right side? Who knows? And so they get the particle to go uh, past this double slit. They called it the double slit experiment. So uh, scientists aren't artsy. Uh, so they just, <laughs> it is what it is. So the double slit experiment. And what do you suppose happened? You get one, one of these, these light particles to go, and it, goes, it comes to the slit, right? The double slit. Does it go on the right side or left side? What do you think? <laughs> yeah. You guys remember this? It ended up going through both sides. Now you say to yourself, self, obviously what happens is that light is able to duplicate itself when it comes to a slit. And so it just, you know, there's actually the, it duplicated itself, right? And there's two light particles on each side. Well, actually, no, that's not what happens. 
It's literally in two places simultaneously. Well, that's insane. So they said, well, what's really happening here is that this particle, when it comes to this boundary, turns into a wave. And I'm like, well, that makes sense. That there is something in this world that changes its very nature because of a boundary that we put in front of it. <laughs> so, so what you're stuck with is either light is able to be in more than one place simultaneously as a particle, or it changes its nature and becomes a wave. Neither explanation really makes anyone feel better about the, the universe because both are the most, the most difficult things to accept in the world. And, you know, when the, when the uh, scientists realized all this, did it make them lose their faith in science? Did they say, how could this be? This is a terrible thing. I am walking away from science, and I'm going to put it on my social media so everyone knows it, and then I'm going to spend the rest of my life making sure no one believes science anymore. All right? What was that? Yeah, they wanted to deconvert people from science. Maybe deconstruct their belief in science. Uh, you know, be a creepy old guy on, on Instagram and, and make songs about science and dance to them. I'm making fun of Joshua, uh, what's his face, Harris. Jo Josh, anyone know who that is? If you don't, good. Um, but those of you that do, uh, you know, he comes to, a difficult, to difficult things in Scripture, and he's like, I'm going to walk away. I can't, I can't believe this. Um, it becomes his excuse to be what he wants to be, which apparently is changing who he's attracted to. So, um, I mean, I really do. I think that was the whole thing. I think that's usually what it is when someone walks away from, from theology or from God and all that sort of stuff. It's, they find an excuse. So, um, so I give you this idea of particle wave duality because uh, everyone has accepted that this is the way life is, that a particle, a wave particle, and they even tried particles that actually have mass, and those particles do the same thing. So we have a God that reflects himself in his own creation, and it could be that God in his creation demonstrates for us that there are times where our minds can't really put something together, but it doesn't change the fact that the two things can coexist. Our minds cannot put together that light particles can change their nature or that a light particle can be at two or three places all at once. Our mind can't get there, but we have to hold those two things together. Does that make sense? We do because we, you know, we can conduct scientific experiments and see it. Okay, well, kind of see it. Uh, some of these experiments, once you add light to be able to physically see it, you ruin the experiment. So you, anyway, there's other ways. It's a long story. It doesn't matter. Okay. But it's funny what we're able to accept completely in our science books, but when, our, when theology, which we would expect to be much more complex than a mere scientific idea, we get all uptight. So, from all eternity, 
in one hand, we have to hold this fact. From all eternity, before God ever said, let there be anything, he decided how this whole thing was going to go. And he, he did it within the counsel of his own will. It's wise. And yes, all the sin in this world and all the suffering and all the stuff that is really hard and bad, even down to the crucifixion and, and murder of his son, was all there. Before he said, let there be light. Okay? All of it was there. It was freely chosen by his will, and it was unchangeable. We, as, um, as humans, understand this best through what we call the, co- the covenant of redemption, where God made, uh, made these plans in a communicative way between the Father, Son, and witnessed by the Holy Spirit. And we see, the, we see this especially in the book of John. When Jesus says, I'm doing the will of my Father, he is referring back to this, these decrees. And so whatsoever comes to pass was already determined, okay, before anyone was created. Nothing is occurring to God. Nothing is surprising to God. Everything that happened, happened in his uh, holy council way before anything was created. But, in saying that, here's the other side. Here's where we get from particle to wave, right? God is not the author of sin. Now, how do we get to that, right? If he planned that sin would be there, how is he not the author of sin? Well, first we have to understand what sin is. Sin is not a special force that is created, right? And this force then enters into people and it makes them bad, okay? What I just described to you, a force that enters into people to make them bad, is an actual religion called Scientology. So if you want to get on board with Tom Cruise, uh, then that's, that's Scientology. The idea that there's these forces that get inside us makes us bad, so we have to get all clear, okay? And that's part of holding on to those little things, the meter, relieving yourself to someone else about all your past so that they can write it down and hold it against you later if you don't tithe, okay? All right. I mean, it's not the worst idea in the world. I mean, you know, uh, I'm just saying it's unethical, of course. Okay. (laughs) We need a new parking lot. Uh, Okay. So, um, so how is it that God is not the author of sin? Well, God does not create sin. Okay? Because sin is not a force. So what is sin? Sin is when a human being defies or neglects his commandments. Okay? That's what sin is. When a human being defies or neglects his commandments. Now that's what we're talking about, particularly with humans. Obviously angels did the same thing. So maybe I could put it this way. When a uh, sentient being defies or neglects his commandments, whether it be angel or person, or human. Okay. 
So that brings us to how we would understand this idea of second causes, okay? Because it's important to understand within this tiny little, is this one sentence? Yeah. Uh, In this one sentence, there's a lot packed into it. So first, God has decided and declared what will be, and he did this without being the author of sin, because he, in planning all these things, he does not violate our will. Okay? He does not violate our will in doing this. Now, right now I'm getting to the particle wave duality bit. Okay? So, God creates humans as they are to be. God creates angels as they are to be. But he gives them, uh, he gives them freedom. Okay, I'm gonna. I you'll notice that I'm constantly avoiding the term free will, and I'm constantly avoiding that term because I've spent enough time in philosophy to know that when we use the term free will, 99.9% of Christians are thinking of a man named William James. Now you might think to yourself, I don't know who William James is. No, you don't but most people have already accepted his philosophy. And his philosophy is this, that everyone has within them free will for two reasons. Number one, because it feels like we have free will. And you might think to yourself, is it really that shallow of a, of a philosophy? Yes. <laughs> it feels like we have free will, so obviously we do. Uh, I don't know if he, if he was around when you know, when quantum mechanics came around, but quantum mechanics, none of us felt it. I'll tell you that right now, but it didn't change, it was there. Okay, so, uh, it feels like we have free will. And number two, uh, because when we make a decision, right, at the moment of decision, we could have chosen otherwise. And so, that's why he thinks we have free will. Now, here's the problem with that. At the moment of decision, could you have chosen otherwise? How do you prove that? There's no possible way to ever scientifically test that theory to believe anything about whether you you could have chosen otherwise. Just because you had other options doesn't mean you could have chosen otherwise. You'd have to go back in time and figure that out. No one can go back in time, therefore there's no way to test it. It's an insane thing that people have been swallowing for years. My point is this. Philosophers have destroyed the term free will, so let's not use it. Um, So what kind of a will do we have? We have a will that typically moves us to do what we want. And a guy named, uh, that I believe more than William James, a guy named... uh, David Hume, who was an atheist, uh, ironically, <laughs> William James claimed to be a Christian. It's, it's, this, is how, this is how philosophy works. Uh, David Hume actually understood that we're a slave to our desires, and that's why there is no such thing as free will, and that made a lot more sense to me. Okay. But this will that we have is not violated. God does not go in and say, even though you're willing something, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to twist it. Um, 
And so there's a freedom of, of, of expressing our will, but that freedom does not violate God's, God's plan that he's already put into place, and God's plan does not violate the will that we have. Okay. Now this is the case because of an explanation of this being second causes. Second causes... Uh, especially back then, was this idea. When you place something, when you cause something, so God causes humans and angels to exist in a kind of freedom. The second thing they do, okay, the next thing they do is they violate God's law. Okay. So then the question is, is God responsible for the second, or does, did God cause the second cause? Did God cause the sin? And this is where you have, to be, you have to be really theological, and even if I can put it this way, scientific. Because you have to ask yourself, did God cause the second cause? Now you might say, well, you know, if I leave my back door open and a robber comes in and steals all our stuff, I did not cause the robber to come in, but I did leave the back door open. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I still am responsible for the second cause of the, of the robber, right? That's how, that's how we might think. And that's fine. The problem is, when we talk about these kinds of second causes, we have to come to a stopping point that... Uh, that is not a cop-out, if I can put it this way. Um, Calvin put it this way, when we come to a place where our minds can't go any further, or when scripture is silent, we have to cover our mouths. And this is not one of those things that's a cop-out because the scientists have to cover their mouths when they get to particle wave duality. That we exist in a universe made by a complex God, and so things are going to be complex. The danger is when we try to go out and protect God by creating some kind of theory. Let me introduce to you a theory that brings us to our second point. Although God, this is number two, although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything uh, because he foresaw it in the future, or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. In other words, God's decree isn't a decree because he looked down the quarters of time and saw that you would choose him, and then therefore he went back and said, ah, choose you first. I'll get you, my little pretty, right? Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't that. This isn't, uh, you know. Where did that idea come from? <laughs> I don't want to say anything mean. But, I mean, you know, you get into these, you know, these old school churches where, you know, you have the pastor that, you know, there's a church right near our house that 
expresses itself on its little sign. And, uh, and one of the expressions they had when we first moved into our house was, not Calvinists, was on their sign. Uh, just before that, they had a sign that said, whosoever means whosoever. And so, you know, somehow they got some weird idea of what Calvinism is, um, as most people do. Um, and, uh, and they wanted to express that they believe that God has to sit and wait for them to invite him in. Uh, so anyway, I'm sure they would be a church that would say, you know, even this predestination that's talked about in Ephesians is really God just looking down the corridors of time and seeing that we would choose him and therefore he chooses us back before he creates all things. Where did they get that idea? Well, I could just say, well, they're Arminians, right? Arminian, our people that followed uh, Arminius, you know, are just basically the anti-Calvinists. But it's really, it really goes before him. It goes to who Arminius was influenced by, which was a guy named Louis de Molina, a Jesuit priest. So really, Arminians are uh, basically uh, Protestant Catholics, when you really think about it. And, and, and well, we'll get to Luther in a minute. Because uh, we eventually get to what's called double predestination, which was one of Luther's uh, main points in one of his writings called Bondage of the Will, which is where Calvin got it, which everyone accuses Calvin of the... Anyway, we'll get to this. Maybe. Okay. Um, so, so Louis de Molina had this theory. And he was, you know, as far as a philosopher goes, he was really ahead of his time because he already believed in the multiverse. I mean, long before the cartoon Spider-Man came out, or the uh, more, most recent Spider-Man came out, uh, the multiverse was already in the mind of Louis de Molina. And Louis de Molina believed that God, uh, before he created all things, this counsel of his will, was that God imagined all the possible worlds that could be. And so a world where um, everything, everything happened just like it did except for uh, today, um, Today, Robbie wore a green shirt instead of a blue one. Otherwise, everything else is the same. So, I mean, every possible different variation um, with the slightest difference, okay, of every possible world. This goes beyond billions and billions of, of different possible worlds into Googles upon Googles, whatever, whatever the biggest word number is. And so... <laughs> And so what God did was he looked and he found a world within his own imagination where everyone chose in their free will everything that he wanted everyone to choose to match his plan. So he has a plan, he, he imagines all the possible worlds where everyone chose what matches his plan perfectly. And then he, what Melina calls, actualized that particular world. When there could have been all these other worlds, right? There could have been a world where, um, where everything kind of happened this way, except, um, you know, I had three kids. Uh, you know, April had three kids, and we adopted two more. Now we had five kids. But other than that, everything's the same. I mean, you understand what I'm saying? 
So then I ask, you know, which leads you to believe, you know, well, why couldn't God accomplish his plan and make my life a little better? <laughs> I mean, why couldn't, why couldn't he accomplish his plan and I had a better car driving to work today? I mean, I mean couldn't, he, couldn't he do that? Anyway, it leads to all kinds of really serious problems. It also leads to the problem of do we really have free will when God could have actualized a... Um, a world in which the will I have right now would have been actualized better in another world. But he kept that from me. Do you understand what I'm getting at here? In trying to protect God and make everyone have free will, you kind of create this bizarre kind of God. And so to, to combat that idea, Article 2 is brought forward saying, although God knows whatsoever may come to pass, right? Because we have this sense of predestination means God knows what's going to happen. Like God is the gypsy uh, that has the crystal ball. And so the gypsy knows what will happen in the future, but has no power over the future. Right? You don't go to the gypsy to try and change your future. You go to the gypsy to find out what's going to happen. Right? I know it's probably not... Politically correct columns of gypsies anymore. I'm sure there's a better term, but that's all I know. Okay. Um, and so although God knows whatsoever, so in, in compiling, in making his plan, in, in creating his plan from his will, he also knows his plan. Does that make sense? So as, as time goes on, he knows what's going to happen in 2025 because it's his plan. But what they're trying to make sure you understand that just because he knows it doesn't mean that he knows it this way. He doesn't know it because uh, he decreed it because he saw it already and, for, and, and so he's just reporting to us what's going to happen. Does that make sense? God isn't merely knowledgeable about the future. What it's saying is God has planned it. God arranged it. This is why your pastor is constantly telling you when tragedy hits, God did that. Okay, in a very real sense. And it's something that we have to acknowledge, where we have to be better thinkers than trying to excuse, uh, trying to pardon our own God because we have a better ethic than him. We have to hold in our hands the particle and the wave, right? God planned it. It hurts. Do you understand? It doesn't, you know, God planned it. I don't see why he did this. This doesn't make any sense. Life could have been a lot better if this hadn't happened. But this is God, okay? And this is the way we have to think because it makes us understand our God better. Think of the people that have tried to excuse God because their ethics were better than God's, and so they create these bizarre theories of free will, these bizarre theories of, you know, God actualized the, the, best, the best possible world, and thank goodness. And then we would say, well, what best possible? I mean, maybe there is a, a little tiny better possible world for me anyway. Um, and so you would, you know, as you start looking at all these um, theories to try and protect God to make him more ethical, you see that it actually destroys that delicate balance 
of who your God is and how complex he really is. He is not a superman who does the best he can with what he has. He is God who has planned it out and directs it with his will. And he does so free from being accused of of being the origin of sin and free of being accused of making a bunch of robots because you are absolutely responsible for your choices. Because if you look in Romans chapter 9, it asks that very question that might be going through your mind right now. If, if God wills something, right, then who can resist his will? Right? That's the question. How is it that I'm free if no one can resist the will of God? Not just that, but how am I responsible for my own choices if no one can resist the will of God? And Paul gives a really good answer that everyone thinks is a bad answer. Paul says, who are you to speak back to God? And you think, oh, okay, well, now I can't even ask questions anymore, right? We, we turn to our teenage self. And we're like, oh, I, I guess asking questions is now a problem. But what Paul is doing is he's reminding you that that's a great question if God was Superman. If God was like you, but with superpowers, if God had an ethical uh, umbrella over him as, as one is over you, and we all had the same umbrella that we all had to answer to, uh, yes, that's a great question. But what if God is not a superman, a person that's like you, but with bigger powers? What if God actually made you? What if God is the author of existence itself when it comes to creation? Then he has what we call ownership. Superman doesn't own you. Superman has power over you. Superman doesn't own everything that exists. Superman exists within everything that exists. But God made it. That means that the pottery can't turn back to the thinking thing and say, why have you made me this way? What Paul's getting at here is, it is not, if I can put it this way, it's not logical for you to even ask that question the way you're asking it. Paul would say, not why have you made me this way, but Paul would say, a better question would be, how can I... uh, How can I be the person you need me to be? Not why have you made me this way, but thank you, right? Because he's speaking to believers. Thank you for saving me from myself. So number three, by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined to everlasting life and others foreordained to everlasting death. Um, Some of us have tried, uh, some people within the camp, if I can put it that way, of Calvinism, have tried to get away with excusing God for condemning people before their own existence by saying something like, everyone's already, already condemned, so God has saved some and left the rest to do what they're going to do. 
And in a sense, that's true, but also in a sense, he really did foreordain some for heaven and some for hell. We don't understand that. We understand how a Superman would do that. A Superman would do that in a cruel way, who in an unfair way would decide who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. But Superman isn't God. God is God. And so there is a sense in which real justice is been, has been done in the plan itself where some have been foreordained for heaven and some for hell. Now you may not understand how at the moment that particle hits that double slit is now a wave, but it is. And there really is justice, real justice, not a philosopher's angle to try and make it justifiable, but it really is justice. Um, and I want to keep that in front of you because I, right now, I mean, I know that our hunger is, please give us something that, that explains how this particle turned into a wave. Um, but we don't have it. All we can do, and this is something that you need to really learn about theology, if you read a theology book, uh, if you read a really good systematic theology book, it's very, very thick, and you will find 99% of what they're saying in there are descriptions, not explanations. They are describing God. They are describing what, the, what God says about the world. They're describing you know, how all this fits together, and they give you good descriptions if you want explanations, that's a very small part of a systematic theology book because a lot of that isn't, isn't there. Some, sometimes, but not all the time. And it can only explain things so far, give an explanation so far, and then it stops. Because our big temptation is to desire a God who is a superman. Isn't it true we would rather worship a God that was more like us, that had explanations that we would like, that would have fairness that we could understand, that had an explanation to himself that we would all be able to get? It makes me even wonder why, um, if that is why everyone loves superhero movies so much and why the Greeks love their God so much because this is a God I can understand. Um, when we come to the actual God, we expect him to be as immense as scripture says, but then when we come across his plan and his will, which should be so immense, just as immense as his being, we say, well, I don't like that because I don't understand that. Do you understand? I mean, when I was a kid, okay, uh, when I was a kid, it shocked me that, that people would worship pieces of wood. I mean, I would, I'd, go to, I'd go to Sunday school class and say, and they started, you know, the, and Israel started worshiping these gods uh, made of wood and made of gold and all these sort of things. I'm like, that's so dumb. Why would they do that? I mean, they're actually talking to the guy. We, you know, we don't get anything like that. I mean, can you imagine if, if God spoke with a voice to us? I mean, that, I, I just thought, what a privilege it was for, these, for Israel to have this, and they still turned to 
gold and, and wood to worship. Why? And I look at us and I think, you know, we may not have the vocal voice of God, but we have his completed word on how we are to interpret his world. Imagine if Israel had that. <laughs> Yet we still turn to God's. We still envy uh, wood and gold. We envy it because we can understand that. And when we talk about God in his immensity, even the immensity of his will, we get, uh, right? I sure would prefer Superman. Okay. Um, these angels, number four, these angels and men thus predestined and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. In other words, it is set. It is as scary as you think it is. God planned it out. And everything the Arminians hate about us, uh, as far as that goes, is exactly right. God really has planned who, particularly, will be going to hell, and who particularly will be going to heaven, and it's his will and plan for it to act to be that way. And that's why Luther, when he wrote Bondage of the Will, he made it clear towards the end, that's exactly what God had done. And people hated that book, and Luther loved it all the way up to his death. He, you know, Up to when Luther was close to his death, he was naming books that he was still proud of, and that was one of them. And at a time where everyone was following Erasmus and saying Erasmus is the coolest guy in town, hey, let's watch Erasmus on YouTube, have you heard his latest lecture? Calvin was saying, no, Luther, he's our guy. It's shocking to me that Lutherans and Calvinists don't get along more than they do. Uh, but it's because most Lutherans aren't really Lutheran. They're what we call Philippists. <laughs> they liked Melanchthon better than Luther. And Melanchthon was a better politician, let's face it. Okay. Really? Yes, that's right. And if they, if they would read the man that they named their denomination after, you, it would, they would probably be appalled by him. I mean, I even wonder if, you know, we the things that appall. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's true. Yeah, that's right. And you know, there's some there's some even helpful things about law gospel thing, but it when it becomes the filter, you can really play some really bad games with it. Um, just to finish this off, I know we're out of time. Um, the the basic idea that's that's running through the rest is to remind us that this predestination is not a massive fist of God, but is grace. It's all grace. That even in the condemnation of some creates a, a more intense grace for the salvation of others. And it's all for the glory of God, which is very hard for us to understand, which is, I think, at the heart of why people hate this chapter the most, because we do not want to believe that all this is about God and not about us. That your existence is for the glory of God, not for the glory of you. And I know that sounds like an easy, trite thing to say, but it really is at the heart of why people cannot stand the idea that there would be suffering for the glory of God. Um, and so let us be encouraged by this and excited about it because... We should always be encouraged and excited when God's work is done because of his plan that he had before the foundation of the world. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the fact that you are goodness and that you are love and that we uh, cannot understand uh, all that you do and all you have planned but we can believe that our God is good and our God is love and that our God has done these things for the good of himself. And this should bring us uh, to, the, to the moment of praise and glory for our, for our God. Let us be humble before you, Lord, and we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.